0: You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org of the teachers and preachers here at the church, but I only preach occasionally, so if I scare you off today, please come back next week. I'm not here always, uh, but I'm very excited for today, because we are kicking off a new series uh, on a book that is very fun to me, and I think a lot of people have an interest in this book as well, but it's a very challenging book of the Bible, because it's very different from everything else in the Bible, so it, it takes a different way of understanding, reading, and interpreting the book. But we believe this is a very timely book as well. A book that we might, we might be the book that we need right now, because this book may be the crisis that we need right now. And of course, that doesn't sound very uh, attractive. Why would I want to go through a crisis? These are usually not good things. These are awful things that we go through life when we go through them. Uh, but crises can have good fruits in our lives. They can shape the assumptions on which we are living and help us make important questions. Because when we go through a crisis, we go through a moment where life stops making sense. So the ways that we've been assuming things to work, how B follows from A, or what are the the things that are worthwhile to pursue in life, they stop making sense. They do not fulfill their purposes, and things cannot be explained anymore, and that's when we begin to deconstruct, to start making questions about the most fundamental things we believe in, and this is a word that is in vogue right now, a lot of people are going through this deconstruction moments in our in their lives, especially through, with the pandemic and how things have been shaken because of that. Um, and it's something that is sometimes important for us to do. And there are many things that cause this in our lives. They are not um, nice at all when they happen to us. Sometimes we feel like, you know, by now I should have X in my life, and I don't. Maybe I should be married by now, I should have kids by now, I should have got a promotion by now, I should be leaving this, uh, living these life experiences that I see people around me living, and I'm not. Why is it that everyone else, especially people who deserve it less than I do, all they have the romance and the travels and the work and the money, and I don't? Why, what Why? is wrong about how I'm living and what I think about life? Or maybe you have achieved the things that you've dreamed of, and you're still miserable. You still feel miserable. So what's wrong? Is it a problem with you? Is it a problem with the thing that you got? Or maybe you're the one, you feel like you're the one who does, you know, right by everyone, the one who is honest and truthful, and does everything by the books, and you're the one suffering for it. And a lot of people around you, they get away with their badness, with their laziness. And worst of all, you seem to make no difference. It seems like it doesn't matter how much you try to do something, you cannot change someone, you cannot change the world, and worst of all, you cannot change yourself. You keep trying, it's been years now, and everything is the same. Those are awful moments in our lives, when we realize those things, when we admit those things in our lives, and that's when we begin to deconstruct. But what if we could go through such a crisis in a controlled environment? What if we could trigger it without any great shock or loss? This is where the book of Ecclesiastes comes in. It is a controlled crisis. It is the experience of going through that process of questioning, of deconstructing um, in a controlled way. In a way that doesn't lead only to despair and meaninglessness, but leads to a reconstruction on something that is much better. So the purpose of this series, and this series will be mercifully short, because this can be a very challenging book to experience, Uh, this is a five-week series, and the purpose of the series is to help you read the book for yourself, because this is a book that needs to be experienced rather than explained. So the idea of today is to help you to be able to go home today, take half an hour of your time, or during the week, and read the book, and get something out of it. So today's sermon will be about six keys to understand and unlock the meanings in the book. I'm not going to explain the whole book to you, but to give you some interpretative keys to help you understand the book, and I hope that you will go home and maybe experience the crisis that this book can cause in your life. So let's start with the first verse of the book that says simply, The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. It's an important verse because it introduces who the author is and what the style of the book is going to be. So key number one, just to understand the context of the book. The book of Ecclesiastes is a speech by someone that the book calls Kohelet in the Hebrew, which means the teacher or the preacher, someone who gathers people to give a speech, like a TED Talk. So, in in this translation, it's the teacher. Some translations will say the preacher. We're going to use the teacher throughout. And the purpose of that speech, the reason why this person gathered everyone, was to talk about the meaning of life such an important topic. But there are actually two voices in the book. There is the teacher, who starts speaking on verse 2 and goes all the way almost to the end of the book, and some other person, who we have no idea who that person was, but who wrote down the speech, also wrote this first verse, and a short epilogue to the speech at the last few verses that we are going to read today. But uh, there are discussions whether, you know, by King of David, the uh, author is meaning to identify himself as King Solomon or not. That's besides the point. doesn't change the meaning of the book, so we're just going to call the author of the speech the teacher. So let's see what the teacher gathered everyone to talk about. This is what he has to say about the meaning of life. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come, generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, and hurries back where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north, round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All the streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear is filled of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. How on earth are we supposed to react to this? Are we supposed to just agree with all of this? Then what do we make of the rest of the Bible? Is everything meaningless? Is, you know, the entire revelation meaningless, and the Old Testament, and the New Testament meaningless? Is it completely pointless that we here gathering this morning? Or are we supposed to disagree and disagree with the Bible? That sounds dangerous as well. So what, how on earth do we deal with a text like this? Is it just meant to shock us or to make us puzzled? So, there's a very important key to understand the book. So, key number two. The book's not an explanation, but an exploration of what gives life meaning. The book's not going to just give you a problem and tell you what the answer is. The book is the teacher's own personal exploration and investigation of what on earth could give life meaning. It means that it's not a straight point from problem to answer, but it's a winding road. And it's a world full of dead ends. The teacher will, you know, go in a way and then find that that's not the answer and go back and contradict himself because now he explores a different way. Which means that, and this is something that, it's not something that you can say of most books of the Bible, but you're not supposed to say amen to everything that is in this book. Because parts of the book are the dead ends those places where the teacher goes and doesn't find meaning. You're not supposed to just agree, so this makes this a very dangerous book to quote out of context. Because there are a lot of things in this book that would be in straight contradiction, even with the book itself. Which means that you're not supposed to agree with every step of the way. There is a conclusion, there is a lesson to be taken from the book. But you have to experience the entire exploration. And if you've ever thought about the meaning of life yourself, you see, you know it's not something like a straight road. Like you start from the problem and then you arrive at a solution. You go everywhere. You start looking for answers and many of them do not satisfy. This is the teacher's experience and this is how he wants to explore with you the meaning of life. So you will also be able to identify what are the dead ends of that exploration. The teacher's method is to find everything that doesn't make life meaningful before he can give you an answer of what does. That's why this is a book of deconstruction. This is why it is a timely book and a book that will make us question whether we are going down a dead end or not. But this is not a book of just deconstruction for deconstruction's sake, as someone who has just been disappointed with life and now everything, nothing matters anymore. It is a book that deconstructs so that you can construct a more solid hope in its place. One of the commentaries on the book of Ecclesiastes opens with this quote by a a French theologian. It says, in order to be prepared to hope in what does not deceive, we must first lose hope in everything. That deceives. And that's why this makes Ecclesiastes a very hard book to read, not because it's not only because it's hard to interpret, but because maybe you will lose a lot of hope in the things that deceive, and that's a good thing. It's a good crisis to go through, but that's only so that you have room now in your heart, in your life, in your mind to build a new hope in something that will survive all future crises. So how does the teacher do it? What is his method to go about investigating the meaning of life? Let's read just a bit more verses 12 and 14 of the first chapter. He says, I, the teacher, was king over Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless a chasing after the wind. There are some key um, words here, and the one that I want to highlight now that's very important for understanding the book is the word either under the heavens or under the sun, because this is a very important thing to understand about what the teacher is trying to do. So key number three. The book is about understanding earthly life under the sun from an entirely earthly perspective. But focus on what is involved right now. The book's about understanding earthly life under the sun from an entirely earthly perspective. So the teacher's method is to ask basically two questions throughout. These are the questions. First of all, it is about earthly life in the sense that it asks the questions, is there anything under the sun in this earthly life of ours that by itself can give life meaning? Anything that we can experience or do in our earthly life that we can say, if I have it, life is meaningful now. Life is fulfilled. I have satisfaction. I have lived a good life because I've done or experienced this thing. And it's also a book about life under the sun in the sense that the perspective, the point of view of this exploration is entirely earthly. It's the question, how much can we find about life's meaning based solely solely on our experiences and our own reasoning about life under the sun. So it's bothly, I'm going to limit myself to what, what I can experience, what I can find out my, on my own about life's meaning. And I'm going to, as my scope of exploration, I'm going to look only at what is earthly. The first question about is there anything that can give life meaning will be the topics of weeks two and four as we look at the importance and the place of work in life and the importance of life experiences. And the second question about how on earth do we make sense of life's meaning will be the topic of weeks three as we look at the question of whether do we get what we deserve in life and about our pursuit of certainties in life. But his conclusion to both these questions is that there is nothing that can give you meaning, and there is no way that you can find out meaning in your life, because everything is hell. So this is key number four. Life is hell. This is a Hebrew word that means a mist, or a vapor, or a smoke, a puff of breath, in the sense that it's mysterious, it's formless, it's hard to make sense of, it's hard to see through, and it's short-lived. This is his conclusion. If your method is to look only at what happens on earth and you're limiting about uh, limiting yourself to what you can experience, you get to this conclusion that life has no meaning. This Hebel word is the word that is translated as meaningless at the beginning of the book. It's actually used 38 times throughout the Bible, throughout the Ecclesiastes book. Um, sometimes it's translated as mysterious or meaningless or vanity, vanity of vanities, that's a, a famous translation. But the conclusion is that it makes no sense and it has no meaning. And now, of course, you might say, okay, this might have worked for people back then because they were, you know, not as evolved intellectually as we are and, we've, you know, we've come now to realize that we make our own lives meaning. And we are brave enough to face that fact that it doesn't come from anyone. It doesn't come from tradition, it doesn't come from your parents, it doesn't come from your culture, it doesn't come from any religion, least of all from a holy book. You are supposed to create your own life, your own life, uh, your meaning of your life. This is how we understand life's meaning today. So what's the point of having an entire series about the meaning of life if you're just supposed to go and create your own? But I think this, this is the point of what Ecclesiastes wants to say. Ecclesiastes doesn't want to just give you life's meaning, he wants to first to prove to you that you cannot make your own, because the conditions for making life meaning are not there. I think we can all agree that, you know, we can discuss what is the specific life meaning of life, of your life, But before it can have any specific meaning, it needs to be able to be meaningful, right? It needs to be able to have a meaning. And for life to have a meaning, I think most of us would agree that it needs at least two things. First, it needs to make a difference, the things that you do your life must make a difference, right? If the same thing happens whether you do A or B or C or D, and the world is completely um, independent of what you do, then what's the meaning of doing anything? Why do A or B if it doesn't cause any difference in the world? Will the world be the same, or the people around you be the same, or your life be the same, had you not tried to do anything of of the things that you have tried in your life? If that's the case, then what's the meaning? What's the meaning of something that has no impact whatsoever in the world around you? And this is what the teacher wants to tell you. If we go with his method of trying to make our own meaning, we'll realize that we make no difference. That our life makes no difference in the world or even in our lives. And he wants to tell you why. First, chance happens to everyone. Everyone's at the mercy of luck, or fortune. Time is relentless and much stronger than you are. If you open on your phone CBC.ca today, don't, don't do it right now, do it after this time, you see the main headline today is about the rich guy who's you know, spending all his money trying to find a way to reverse aging so that he won't age and that we would be able not to age. What is that if not an admission that time is an enemy, time is relentless, and time wins at the end. Also, the book and the teacher once felt tell that nature is too powerful. There are many stronger forces than you are in nature. It does things to us and on us that we have no control over. And at the end of the day, death ends everything to everyone, doesn't matter how well or badly you have lived. So chance and time and nature and death determines Our fate, not ourselves. And if that's the case, why do anything at all? Just wait and see. Well, that's one ingredient that he takes away from any attempt of trying to make sense of life, and the other one is that for life to have any meaning, you need to be able to make some sense of it. You need to be able to give some explanation of why you got here. Why is your life the way that it is today? How does B follow from A? If you do this, this will follow. If you do something else, something else will follow. You need to be able to make sense and give a little bit of an explanation of how you got to where you are today. Otherwise, everything is random, and then again, it's meaningless. It doesn't have any significance. And that's the other thing that the teacher wants to sort of bring to ground. He wants to show you that there is no law, there is no principle, no pattern to life that can, can explain life with any satisfaction. There are no laws of anything that will give you certainty about anything that you observe. There is anything that will be able to tell you this is why person A got the life that they have and this is why I have the life that I have. All the explanations that you try to come up with come out empty because there are countless and countless exceptions and proofs to, uh, and evidence to prove that even that law, that pattern, that idea is also wrong. So the teacher's conclusion is, we can't create our own meaning in life because the conditions that are necessary for life to have any meaning do not exist. So we cannot create them. Or do they? Because this is an important thing, this is the the bulk of the book, is to help you to lose your hope on these things that will try to explain your life with certainty, or to fulfill yourself with what is only earthly. But that's not the end of the book, it's not the conclusion of the book. These are the many dead ends that the teacher goes through in that exploration. But it's not the conclusion, and I I have to spoil the book for you, because I think this is quite a miserable place to end the sermon today, and just ask me to come next week. So I want you to spoil the book, also otherwise, why would you read yourself? It's just depressing. But this is not the end of the book. Do you know what the conclusion of the book is? It's this, key number 5, it's a good conclusion to have in mind as you read the book. The conclusion is, there is more to life than what we can see under the sun. First of all, we know that what we do actually matters because we'll be judged for it. And we can begin to make sense of life when we remember that we were created on purpose by God. Actually, I skipped the verse, but I want to go back to that verse, because those are the verses that end the book. These are the verses written by that person that I told you that wrote down the the speech and then wrote an epilogue to it. The last two verses of the book say this. Now, at the end of the speech, all has been heard, and here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind, for God will bring Every deed into the judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Now, I have an admission to make, and I make this admission knowing that, you know, having read all the commentaries on the book, this seems to be a common uh, experience reading the book. The ending of the book can be a little disappointing. You wait for something very grandiose, something that will be, you know, that will answer all your questions, because the book spends so much time just deconstructing that you hope that it will spend just as much time giving an explanation. But this is the end of the book. It's a very short explanation, but there has a lot to unpack in it. But most of all, it's only the beginning of a new journey, a journey that is not based on lies anymore, but on the truth of God as our creator and as our Judge. The end of the Ecclesiastes actually sounds very, very similar to the beginning of Proverbs. If you've read the book of Proverbs, you know that one of the main... Ideas of the book is that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. It's by remembering the Lord as our Creator and our church that we begin to make sense of things. That's the beginning of a new journey. But more importantly, what the teacher wants to tell you at the end of the book is that his method was flawed all along. That he couldn't get anywhere because he was limiting himself to what he could experience for himself and only what he could find on earth. But if we were made for something more than this earth, then there is where our meaning lies. And then he remembers that there is more than we can know, more that we can know beyond what we can find out for ourselves. We have God's revelation as well to tell us about these questions. But to the point that, you know, the two important questions that he goes through the book about how we make sense of life and do we matter, his answer is one, we can make sense of life because life is not random, not entirely to the mercy of chance and fortune, because we were created by a God who has everything in control and who made you with a purpose and for a purpose. You are no accident. So there is a meaning, there is a logic, there is a reason behind your existence. And because you were made intentionally, there is some sense to be made. And now you go on a journey to find that sense throughout the rest of the scriptures. And second, and I know most people won't find very uplifting the idea that we are comforted at the end of the book by the idea of judgment, but the idea of judgment is proof that what you do makes a difference. Because if it didn't, what would be the point of judging anything that you do? If whether A or B or C would turn out to be the same, then there is no point in judging you for doing A rather than B. But because we are going to be judged by God, we know that we make a difference. So much so that He wants to keep us accountable for what we do. Everything that we do matters and counts at the end. It's not meaningless. It's not for nothing. It's not irrelevant. Now, there is a weird comfort in thinking that the world is meaningless. And I think it's clear now, once we understand, you know, the the answer of the teacher, that says that, you know, your life is not meaningless because you'll be accountable for it. Because with that comes also the realization of guilt. And there is a comfort in thinking that, you know, the, the world and my life is completely out of my control because now your failures, your hurts, and the hurt that you've caused are not your fault anymore. If nature is too powerful, if everything is up to chance, if fate decides everything, then you're not really guilty of the loss, the hurt, and the failures in your life and around you. And that is really comforting. And there is, uh, you know, it's really attractive to our age to think that the world is meaningless in that way, because it takes away from us the responsibility. So, you know, by if you only read this book of Ecclesiastes, you might, you know, uh, put away the despair of meaninglessness, but that could replace be replaced by a despair of guilt and responsibility because now the weight of everything that has happened in your life, you might be... you might find that they fall upon your shoulders now because yes, you made a difference and might have been for the worse. So there's a very important key to read the book and I hope you never forget this one. Ecclesiastes is not all that God wants to tell you. It's not entire revelation. It's not the end of the story. It's a very important book. It is Maybe the crisis that we need so that we stop hoping on things that will deceive us, but it's not the end of the story. There's a lot more. And more importantly, there is Jesus Christ. There is Jesus Christ that saves us from all kinds of despair. We have to remember Jesus Christ all the time as we read this book. We have to remember the cross the entire time, because otherwise we'll get to the end and we face the judgment and we despair because of it. But because of the cross we don't have to despair anymore. Because in the cross we find forgiveness for our misused responsibility. God gave us responsibility, the ability to matter and to make a difference. And we've messed up. But that doesn't have to be a burden anymore. Because Christ took upon himself the guilt of that misused responsibility. So now we can finally be free to live a life that makes a difference, without fear of judgment. That's how we can be free to matter, when we remember that our past and our present and our future mistakes have been paid for by the blood of Christ. And also, as we look to Christ, we remember also the resurrection, which is something that the teacher wasn't considering at all, but that changes everything. Because what the Resurrection promises us is that life under the sun will be forever transformed. There will be a new heavens and a new earth, and a new life under the heavens, and heaven will come to earth. There will be a life under the sun, but entirely transformed. Heaven will not have the final word, always. We will not be at the mercy of nature and chance and time, and least of all of death. So that experiencing of life as a smoke that is confusing, and short-lived is not the final experience of our lives. Because of the resurrection, we know that heaven will give way to something a lot more solid, a lot more satisfying and everlasting. So I hope that this will encourage you to go through the book. I know it's, it's not an easy, necessarily uplifting message, but it is. it might be the surgery that our heart needs. So it's a book that doesn't take a lot to a long time to read. Like if you have 30 minutes, you know, a short TV show, let, duration, just sit alone without your phone, maybe a cup of coffee or tea, and just read the book from beginning to end. And let's explore this book together. We have four more weeks where we'll be going through some of the important topics that are weaved through the book. But we hope that you experience the book for yourself, that you will cast away the lies that you might have been living on, and that you build a new hope in the Son of God Jesus Christ who died for us so life wouldn't be heaven. Amen? Let's pray. God we thank you. We thank you that sometimes um, your words can be hard to us, Lord, but for a good purpose. You want to reform our hearts and our lives so that we be so that we stop chasing that ends, so that we stop putting our hopes on things that deceive. And instead, we may chase you, Lord, the living water, the true hope, and the future, Lord, for which we were made. So we pray, Lord, as we explore this book together, you help us cast away the lies that deceive us, Lord. And help us build a hope that will last every crisis that we might face in the future, and that will bring us home to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org.